0: You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to The Way Home Podcast. I am so glad that you're joining me today, uh, and I'm so gratified by each and every one of you. Who take time uh, to out of your day to listen to these conversations we are having, uh, whether you're uh, doing the dishes or you're doing some exercise or uh, part of your commute, dropping your kids off at school or camp or wherever you're going. Just really honored that you would listen to these. I want to encourage you, if you enjoy uh, the podcast and you've never reached out and contacted me, or even better, if you've never gone on iTunes or Stitcher or uh, Spotify, or any other place, and written a review, I'd love for you to do that. That just helps others uh, find out about the podcast. Um, I want to read one review from a person named Number One Fan, which is always gratifying to have a Number One Fan. They write, great podcast. I just stumbled upon Dan in these podcasts. I was just looking for something to help keep me track, track with my Christian faith. The guests that are on these podcasts are great, and I enjoy listening to Dan's encouraging and engaging questions. Well, thank you, Number One Fan. I appreciate that. If you Uh, would like to write a review, uh, do so and then go to my website, danieldarling.com and copy that review in the contact uh, portion as you contact me. And if you do that, I will send you a free copy of my latest book, A Way With Words, a free signed copy. So please do that so other people can find out. Okay. Today we have a wonderful conversation in store for us. I don't know about you, but I have children who um, are getting closer to the age where we'll send them off to college. We're not at that place yet, but my oldest daughter is 16. I have a son who is uh, just turning 13. I have a daughter who's going to be 12 and another daughter is going to be 10. So we're thinking a lot about college, where to go. Do we do a Christian college? Do we do Uh, a state college, uh, how are we going to pay for it? All those conversations. But one of the things we're really thinking about is what will that college experience do for them and how will it shape them and form them? Uh, As you know, that experience can be very formative and helpful. Well, I wanted to have on here uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, who is the president of the Reformed Theological Seminary uh, in Charlotte, and he is the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity here. I really enjoy his work. I've listened to many of his lectures that are available on the RTS app, uh, particularly ones on, on the Book of Revelation and other things. Uh, but he has a really interesting new book, and it's called uh, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. And one of the things he does in this book is he really kind of walks through some of the arguments. Uh, a, a Christian will face, particularly if they go to a college that is not uh, orthodox and robustly Christian, uh, per, perhaps a secular university. Some of the things you're going to hear in religion class, philosophy class, that are going to sort of push back on their Christian beliefs. And he kind of walks through these arguments one by one in a way that's very easy to understand. Well, I want to have Michael on to talk about how to survive Christian being a Christian in college, what parents should be thinking when they're sending their kids off, how do we equip them uh, to be ready to refute arguments against Christianity as they move into adulthood. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Let's join up with Dr. Michael Kruger. Well, I'm glad to have uh, on the podcast. I think this is the first time I've interviewed you, but I may have had you on before a couple of years ago. I don't remember, but uh, Dr. M- Michael Kruger from uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, author of many books, scholar. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, it's great to be with you. I can't remember if I've done this before or not, but uh, good to be here now.
0: I think we we I had you on when we talked about your book on the the second century. Okay, that
1: um, makes sense. which was yeah.
0: which was a great book, by the way. Thoroughly Thank enjoyed you. it. But anyways, I, I wanted to have you. Uh, and to talk about your latest book, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping Faith in College, uh, which is a timely resource. I have a 16-year-old daughter and she's my oldest and we have four kids. So I'm thinking about this as our kids get to that age where they'll be going to college. So what motivated you to write this book? Was this born out of an experience that you had uh, in your college experience or your experience as a parent or people asking you questions or kind of all of the above? Well, it's a
1: bit all of the above, but I think uh, at its core is sort of my own story. And uh, the beginning of the book is a bit autobiographical, although the bulk of the book is is not. The bulk of the book is uh, you know set up as letters to my daughter who's in college. But it all started for me years ago when I was a freshman at UNC Chapel Hill. And I tell the story in the book that that I was a student sitting in a religion class getting bombarded with arguments and ideas I'd never heard before. I didn't have answers to the questions. And it, it, it provoked quite a crisis of faith for me. Mm. And um, I also mentioned in the book that that professor was Bart Ehrman, which mm. some might know is a very well-known uh, critic of Christianity today. And at the time, he was, he was not as well-known. He was just starting out his career but uh, there I was, you know, in that class. And so I, I remember that very vividly, and, and it motivated me over the years to pursue my own career in biblical scholarship. But now that my own daughter is in college, I decided, you know what, it's time to write this book. And uh, so I'm glad I got a chance to get it finished before she uh, before
0: she graduated. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I you know, there's a, I think the Gospel Coalition hosted a a really good kind of back and forth series of pieces on, you know should a Christian go to a secular college? Should they go to a Christian college? I think some good conversation about that. Obviously that's a decisions that are personal and every family has to kind of work through those. But uh, in general, I'd love for you to just kind of talk a little bit about that and then really give us some tools for most, you know, for Christians who who go to uh, quote secular colleges, which is, I, I would, I would imagine most of our, most people in our churches most of their kids are going to secular colleges, community colleges, and so I'd love to have some tools for that. But first, let's talk, kind of talk about the decision-making process, both you know, as a Christian young person, but also as a parent helping to guide, guide our kids.
1: Yeah, I read that uh, series on TGC with great interest. Part of the reason was because the person writing about her experience at a secular university was actually my daughter, Emma. Mm. Um, she actually wrote that article um, saying that, uh, yes, she was at a secular school, and yes, it presented challenges, but it's, but it, but God had used it to really grow her and strengthen her. And that, that's part of the, the message I would give. And that is certainly we all recognize that every, every family has to make its own decision. We realize that every child is different. Every situation is different. And so some, some parents will pick up public school, Some will pick a, a, a private Christian school. And, you know, those, those are decisions that are complicated, but, but for those who are thinking about a public university, it's not quite the, 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 the sort of hopeless scenario that some make it out to be. Yes, there's challenges. And I wrote the book because of those challenges, but there's also a great possibility for really rich, deep Christian fellowship at a lot of those schools. And as I point out in the book, sometimes you grow the most as a Christian when you're challenged. Mm-hmm. Sometimes your best spiritual development can only come when you're going through certain kinds of uh, trials like that. Whereas if you're sort of protected all the time and sort of in your little enclave. Sometimes you just don't get opportunities to to, to expand and grow like you, you might otherwise get. So I think that those sort of considerations need to be on every parent's mind. Now, the other thing I would say, too, is that, you know, there's a lot of good Christian schools out there, colleges, I mean, but not every Christian college that claims to be a Christian college is a Christian college. What I mean by that is oftentimes students get surprised. They go to a so-called Christian university or Christian college and they not hear anything any different than what they would hear at UNC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you just need to go in eyes wide open about that. It's not as if people are exempt from these conversations if they go to a Christian school. The issues are still going to come up.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and and uh, a good point you made there at, at the end. It, it does seem to me, as I think through this, it might depend on the disposition of 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 the person going off to college, right? So if if you have a, a child who is easily influenced by their peers. You wonder if going to a, a secular university though they'll, they'll be more apt to sort of, you know, imbibe and accept, you know, false ideas versus someone who's kind of confident in their faith. You know, I wonder how much that plays into it.
1: Yeah, this is where, you know, wisdom of, of parental advice is gonna play a role. You look at your child and you say, Okay, here's what mm-hmm. I think you can handle and what you're what you can do and and where we think is a good fit for you. And that's gonna vary case by case. I will say though that 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 prolonging the exposure to the world has got an inevitable end point mm-hmm. right because sooner or later even if you send that child to a christian college and I already made the point that some christian colleges don't really give you that much of a different experience than some secular schools but even if it did you still only have 4 years until now you're out in the real world what do you do then right. you know is it you know eventually that that person has to face the reality that they're going to come across a non-Christian culture they have to, to to interact with. And so, you know, that you're just delaying what eventually will happen. And so you just have to figure out what the best timing is. And and that's uh that's that's up to every parent and every Yeah, student. and
0: it, it it seems like a matter of, you know, do they need more formation? More more formation in the in the Christian disciplines and the Christian Christian theology. And
1: possibly they do. I, I think one of the things I've learned in this book, as I've written this book, is that the church has a lot of room to grow and forming these students before they go to college. So if you're 18 years old and you're off to college and you've never talked to a non-Christian and you've never heard a, a real substantive non-Christian argument, then there's something amiss there with the way you've been raised. Um, because you know by 18, you've got to be able to handle at least some of that. So if someone needs four more years before they're ready to deal with any of that, okay, fair enough. But you, you've got to be asking the question, what do what we spent the first 18 years doing here? Um, and we're trying to prepare them to enter into a world that really exists out there. They have to enter into it eventually. Yeah. So, uh, you know, parents need to think through that carefully. Right. And
0: then I, I also think about so many, you know, so there's the argument for Christian college. But then I also think about there's so many um, Christian leaders that I know and then you know that actually were discipled and their faith faith strengthened in a secular university because they, A, were challenged, but B, were Part of a really robust campus group, whether it's Reform University Fellowship or Crew or Navigators, um, or part of a really solid church that reached out to uh, college kids, and so there's, you know, I, I, I lost count of how many Christian leaders I know who are leading Christian organizations who became, either became uh, Christians in college because of those ministries or their faith was strengthened as a result, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I,
0: you know we don't, I don't know any hard
1: stats on Christian leaders and whether they went to Christian colleges or secular colleges, but I think your point is valid, which is plenty did go to secular colleges and, and God used it for, uh, for good ends. I mean, that's my story. You know, I, I went to, you know, you, if, if, if the listeners may or may not know about UNC, it's a, obviously a big Southern university, but it's, 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 uh, pretty, pretty crazy sometimes over there in terms of the, the stuff that's being, uh, promulgated and taught. So it's by no means a a, a comfortable place for a for an evangelical, but yet God can still use it as a place to grow and stretch you.
0: So I want to pivot to really the substance of your book, Surviving Religion 101, and just even the title of it makes me think that perhaps the greatest kind of challenge to uh, to a Christian's faith in college will be the religion classes. Why do you think that? Well, the title is sort of a, a broad statement,
1: right? Yes, lots of times the the, the center point is an actual class. Um, it may not actually be a religion class. To be fair, I mean, it could be a sociology class. It could be a psychology class. It could be a science class. Um, and so, uh, the 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 religion one hundred and one moniker was more of a, a broad way to say the college experience, which certainly entails classes, but also conversations with your fellow students and even call it conversations with professors outside of class. And so, uh, but but yes, the, the the classroom environment is probably the center of the. Of of things, and that's certainly where I got hit. Right, was it was an actual religion class, um, and and I'm sure that'll be a story repeated uh, over and over again every year. And so, yeah, this this book prepares people for those sorts of things, but also for just conversations where they're not Christian
0: friends. Yeah, I, I want to ask you, like how how do you counsel a student who is a f- wants to be a faithful Christian, but obviously is going to one of these classes and is assigned reading that you know, let's say he has to read Bart Ehrman or or others and has to assess it fairly and participate in a class where maybe most of his peers are not Christians. Maybe they mock Christianity. Maybe they think Christianity's even dangerous, right? Maybe the teacher's saying that. And how do you kind of stay strong in that environment in a way that's both good for your faith, but also a kind of witness to the people around you, besides obviously getting your book?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I hope the book's helpful. Uh, I don't spend a ton of time in the book on practical tips, but I do have uh, a few thoughts on it. I mean, one one mistake I think a lot of Christian college students make, and part of this is just youthfulness and, and, and zeal, is they, they can quickly develop a sort of defensive martyr complex in those situations where, you know, I'm everyone's out to get me, you know, they're super defensive they' they they feel like they're obligated to raise their hand every time the professor says something they don't agree with and they become that person. that person in the class, it's always sort of combative and 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 gadfly-ish all the time. And look, there's a point where you do stand up for truth and there's a point where you speak up, sure. but you know one broad thought for Christians is you don't have to sort of feel like you you're in every fight and have to win every argument and have to speak up at every moment you know there's a there's a piece of wisdom there and finding out when you need to do that otherwise you're going to just be doing that all the time because honestly in a lot of these classes you know all day long you're hearing things that you may disagree with and so you know being patient and, and not being sort of uh overly combative is a is a good place to start and realizing that you don't have to solve all the problems yourself and fight every fight
0: that's a good word I mean I think we're we're sort of conditioned on the sort of god's not dead motif which i think some of that's helpful but some of that i think also we feel like we have to be the one to go in and change change the professor and change our peers right i've seen the film
1: it's you know know, i understand it's well intended and and there's some helpful things there but but i think it's a bit you know overly dramatic at points in terms of what it might look like in a classroom and and um i think you know, maybe it's unfortunately inspired some students to behave in the ways I've just yeah, described. Yeah, and,
0: and them, so. it, it seems like your approach, too, is to tell students, you know, you're not going to change that teacher, probably, or convince them that they're wrong.
1: Yeah, very unlikely, um, and also, aside from the statistical likelihood of it, of course, it's always in God's hands, it's just not, you don't have to feel like that you're, you're that you, this is your job as a seminary, or, or as, a, as a, as a college student, that my number one job is to try to convert my professor and win every argument. No, that's not your number one job. There's, there'll, there'll be times when you do engage and engage as faithfully as you can. But um, the idea that you're a warrior um, in sort of this uh, godless land where everything's a fight, I think you know, you're know you gonna get yourself in a, in a place where no one wants to talk to you. Uh, and you're, you're, you're just Mr. Combative all the time.
0: Hello, friends. I just want to tell you about a really new partnership uh, that we have developed with an amazing company called Canopy. I don't know about you, but as a parent, I find it increasingly difficult to monitor my children's Internet consumption with all the devices and computers. And how do you balance safety on the Internet in terms of objectionable content, pornography and things that we don't want them to see with speed and use of the internet for things that they need like their homework getting a hold of them my oldest one is driving and i want to be able to her to have a way to get a hold of me how do you do that well sometimes it feels like you have to prioritize either speed and accuracy and accessibility or safety well my friends at canopy have developed this really neat tool that they beta tested in israel and it's so good they brought it over to the united states and it uses this proprietary technology Uh, using artificial intelligence to block objectionable images, but not always necessarily websites. And so how this works is that even on their phones, if someone texts them something objectionable, or they're going to a website that they need to go to, but there's objectionable images, it doesn't block the website, but it'll block the the images from coming through. And it works uh, in multiple apps that are on their phone in ways that a lot of other filters don't. It's a great, great tool. And if you are a Way Home listener, you can go to canopy.us slash wayhome. That's canopy.us slash wayhome, C-A-N-O-P-Y.us slash wayhome. And you can get a special discount, your first 30 days free and 20% off of Canopy for life. So you want to do that. Go to canopy.us slash wayhome and check this out. It's a great tool that I know you will use and, and be thankful for as a parent. What are a, a few a specific objections to Christianity that you, are most prevalent? Obviously, campuses are changing. So maybe the, the questions and the critiques of Christianity are different today than maybe they were 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But what are some of the most prevalent questions students can expect to face uh, on a secular college campus?
1: Yeah. well, as you might uh, imagine, I mean, I try to cover the main ones in the book. I have 15 chapters dealing with all kinds of different questions. Um, and you know one, one thing to note is that in, in some senses, there's nothing new here. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, the objections to Christianity have been happening for thousands of years and Christians have been answering them for thousands of years. And so in one sense there's not there's not a, there's, there's never a really pure new objection I might I might say. On the flip side, There is a lot that's changed since I was in college. Um, I'll mention one thing that's notable, and that is when I was in college, you you wouldn't normally find uh, the university setting sort of uh, objecting to Christianity on moral grounds. Usually it was on scientific or Hmm. historical grounds or intellectual grounds. But now, and I have wrote about this in the book, now one of the biggest objections to Christianity is actually moral, that, that Christianity is morally offensive or it's morally reprehensible or it violates some sort of moral code. Uh, in the universe and therefore should be rejected on those grounds. And it took a lot of a lot of guts 30 years ago to make that argument. I mean, most people just wouldn't make that argument. They just admit, OK, it's the good book. I I just leave me alone. Right. Stop. Stop. Sh- stop. Stop shoving morals down my throat. But now the people doing the shoving are actually on the other side, ironically. Um, and so Christians are receiving the moral argument rather than giving it. And I think that's an interesting flip-flop. And I, and I don't know if most Christians are ready for that. Um, usually we're, we're used to giving that argument, not receiving it. And we need to do a better job of responding to it. Mm. How
0: do you respond to that? I mean, obviously, in a summarized way, uh, people need to, to read the yeah. book. But I mean, I think the temptation for us, even for not a Christian in college, for just out in the world facing these arguments, I know my own temptation is to be very defensive to say hey, look at all the good that Christians are doing. And I think it does seem there is an argument there, right? Like uh, I think Tom Holland's book, uh, His History of Christianity has shown that even some of the arguments by which Christians are critiqued uh, originated in Christianity. So I, I guess what is the best approach to that criticism?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's there's two layers here. There's sort of the the, 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 the what I might call the proximate layer, the, the ultimate layer. The proximate layer is you could try to respond to the, to the claim. So, someone says the Bible advocates genocide, and that's morally wrong. There's probably a place where you could better explain what the Bible really is saying and teaching um, and the internal logic of, of the Christian system there. And I do this in the books. So you can respond on an approximate level to individual moral complaints. But I would also add we as Christians need to do better at the ultimate level. And here's what I mean by that we need to also ask the non Christian where he's getting these moral norms from when he makes his objections. So if someone is saying that Christianity is morally wrong or the teachings of the Bible are morally wrong, well, they better have a standard in the worldview for how they know something is wrong or right. And it needs to be an ultimate moral standard because if it's just their own personal opinion, that's not an argument. In, the Bible, in other words, the Bible has to actually be wrong morally for the argument to work. But for it to actually be morally wrong, there has to be a moral norm that someone presumably has access to that the Bible's violating. We just need to call the non-Christian to account for that moral norm. Where does it come from? How do you know what it is? How do you know what's ultimately right and wrong? Well, once you do that, you turn the tables on them and and, are forcing them to give an account of their worldview. And you'll find out very quickly, most people don't have any explanation or any answer or any accounting for where their moral norms come from. They just simply don't like something or they're simply bothered by something. They say it's wrong and they expect you just to go along with it. But if you challenge them to account for how they know what's right or wrong, you'll find very quickly that the worldview falters. And so here's where Christianity is strong. We actually have a reason for why we think things are right, are right or wrong is that they reflect God's character. The non-Christian is going to struggle a lot more to give an account for morals uh, on, on his worldview. Yeah, that's a that's a great,
0: great way to think about it. Um, you, you talk about going to secular, uh, going to university and having that kind of moment of like uh, questioning a little bit. So what, was there a pivotal moment where you turned back and said, no, actually Christianity is, is true, is good, is beautiful. Like what was that moment for you? And, and, you know, kind of what turned, what turned the page when you, you know, you're taking classes from Bart Ehrman. So what caused you to kind of turn away and say, no, I I don't, I don't think this is right.
1: Well, I never had a moment where I would have said, I lost my faith in college. Um, what, what, what happened to me is just that, uh, I had my confidence Mm -hmm. rattled. So I was there in class and I had a lot of things thrown at me, and I didn't have answers. Um, now, some people with without those answers did, in fact, abandon the faith and, and, and leave it entirely. Thankfully, I was able to just simply say, hey, I, I need to find out if there's answers to these questions. So I, I sort of went on a, a personal search, so to speak, where I started doing research into these questions and asking whether Christians had answered these, these objections before. And and not surprisingly, and thankfully, I found out that Christians had, answer, had answered these things before, and there was actually a, a whole other side of the argument that I wasn't getting in class. So yeah, I would describe my own experience as more shaken and more rattled. Uh, and and then when I started discovering there were good answers, I was actually very much encouraged by what I was learning. I, I realized, wow, there's a whole other side here, and it's pretty fascinating stuff. And then it, 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 it ignited my own interest in the field. And so from there on out, I was like, wow, I want to learn more about text and canon and the origins of Christianity. And that led led me on my own uh, academic journey.
0: If you're talking to parents, what are some specific things parents can do to prepare their kids to go off to college? I mean, obviously, there's the obvious things that, you know, kind of forming and shaping and discipling our kids, you know, throughout their childhood. But are there some specific ways, especially as they get into the high school years, that we can sort of get them ready to, for what they're going to face.
1: Yeah. I think philosophically I would, I'd want to challenge parents on, on their approach. I mean, I think I've run into enough parents out there over the years uh, to know that many of them sort of treat the spiritual world kind of like a, 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 parent might, might, might treat the, the world of, 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 medicine and health. There's, there's, a, there's sort of what we call germaphobe parents out there where their number one goal in life is to make sure their child mm. never gets sick, never plays in the dirt, never gets any germs. So they're always using hand sanitizer and, and Clorox wipes from day one, thinking that they're helping their child. Well, well, studies have shown that actually that doesn't help your child's health like you think. Yeah, your child may not get, get sick when they're younger years, but studies have shown that if they don't get exposed to certain germs, their their immune system never gets kickstarted, and they actually get sicker later in life. Um, there's an analogy there for parents uh, spiritually. You need to at, at the at the right level of dose and the right level of exposure, get your kids exposed to "quote unquote" germs out there that they can then respond to. Um, and so, I think parents need to think about age-appropriate ways to introduce their kids to non-Christian arguments um, and how to respond to those non-Christian arguments. I mean, I think one of the worst-case scenarios is when a, when a when a when a student gets to college and there's the I've never heard that before speech, right? Like. I never heard that objection. No one's ever told me that. And then there's this doubt, like my pastor didn't tell me, my parents didn't tell me. And there's this sort of crisis of everyone's been hiding things from me. Well, we've got nothing to hide as Christians. Let's just sit down with our fourteen or fifteen year old kid, and maybe even younger, and say, "Look, here's what, here's the stuff out there. We're not, a, we're not afraid of this. Here's what you're going to hear, and uh, and here's what our answers are to these things." I think churches are living in in fear, uh, and parents probably are living in fear in ways that aren't healthy.
0: Uh, I, I guess what did what would you say to parents who are? are, are, are are kind of fearful, you know, of, of that moment where, you know, we're having to let our kids go and and trust their souls to the Lord uh, in that, in that space. Um, And particularly, I, I guess, what advice would you give to a parent if you have a child who's maybe kind of questioning and doubting a little bit their faith? You know, I think, our temptation is just to kind of panic and, and be like, Oh no, we failed. Everything's terrible. What should we be doing in those moments when we do have kids who will say, well, maybe question and doubt uh, whether the Christianity that they've been brought up with is true.
1: Yeah, this is, this is where I think parents are at a crossroads. Um, I've seen a number of cases where parents hit the panic button. They become very defensive. They want to shut down the, 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 the pathway their child's on. Um, with their questions and then sort of even become more protective. I think that's a mistake. I think what parents need to do is take a deep breath, uh realize that 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 everybody's uh sort of uh, soul is 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 literally in God's hands, not theirs, that their child is in that same boat, that God is in sovereign control over their future. take a deep breath and say yes, let's let's deal with those objections. let's listen to them let's let's hear their concerns and doubts and process it with them without being um, you know, overly uh, defensive about it. And I think you'll find that it just deflates the whole thing. And rather than sort of, you know, exacerbating the tension, it relieves it. And, and it teaches the child that, oh, I guess you can ask hard questions and that's okay. It's allowed. I can, I can probe into these questions without feeling ashamed of myself, um, without feeling like that, that I'm violating some rule. Um, and there's too many churches and too many families, honestly, that just don't really allow those kinds of questions because they think if you start allowing those kinds of questions, it's going to take you down a path of unbelief. And, uh, and and I would argue the opposite. It's only when you honestly deal with those questions that you may actually prevent your child from going down the path of unbelief. And if they go down the path of unbelief anyway, what are you going to do as a parent? You, all you can do is pray for your child. You can't control them. You can't control their life. You can do your best to raise them, answer their objections honestly uh, with freedom and then trust it into God's hands. Um, but I think the, the, the overzealous bubble method, uh, I think has shown itself just doesn't work.
0: Mm. I, I guess last question, uh, what are a few, uh, practical ways students can help encourage and grow and guard their faith while in college? I mean, uh, what advice do you give to seniors who are graduating, going off to college?
1: Yeah, there's a number of things that you need to do when you get on the college campus. I would tell a a senior in college um, who's getting ready to be a freshman. Um, I cover in my first chapter a number of these, uh, but I'll I'll mention one here, and that is what I kind of comically call my horror movie rule. (laughs) So uh, my horror movie rule, and I I love scary movies, which is kind of one of my funny things. (laughs) Um, And I know some people love scary movies, and some very much don't love scary movies. But I think we all could agree there's a very common mistake made in scary movies, and that is the 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 people head off into the dark alone all the time in scary movies. And you're thinking, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you heading off alone? And why are you heading off in the dark? Stay in the group and stay in the light. That's like the horror movie rule number one. That's always broken. Well, there's a spiritual parallel there. uh, And if you apply the horror movie rule to your spiritual life in college, the same rules applies. Don't deal with your doubts and challenges and issues alone in the dark. Stay in the group. Stay in the light. In other words, uh, be in community with other Christians, whether that's a campus ministry or church or both, um, and process them there. Um, Don't just go off uh, alone. And I think you'll find that that one thing, that's not the only thing. There's a hundred other things. But if you do that one thing, your odds (laughs) Surviving uh, uh, Religion 101 are going to go up uh, hmm. uh,
0: significantly. Well, I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Michael Kruger. He's the author of Surviving Religion 101, among many other books. And want to encourage, if you're listening, to check out his work. He teaches at RTS uh, Charlotte. And uh, I've, I've actually listened to some of your audited some of the courses that have uh, been available for free and have enjoyed your teaching and preaching. Uh, and I want to thank you for this great resource. I want to encourage folks to get it. We'll have links in the show notes. I think if you're a parent like I am and you have kids about ready to go to college, this will be a great resource both for, both for yourself and for your kids and perhaps for um, youth pastors and anyone else interacting with youth. So uh, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M Darling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters.